Welcome. Good evening. So glad that you've chosen to join us again. Hopefully you saw some of the signs on the way in. You parked in the right um, spot. If you're wondering why our parking lot's a little different, why the building's a little different, we've got a number of events going on tonight. The Alpha, Alpha Center uh, Gala is going on in our main auditorium. We've got another group. So we only have a certain amount of the hallways. If you need to use the restrooms, the only ones that are open is if you go out and go back that way. There's the men's and the women's bathroom over there, but not, not that direction. So um, sorry for the leaking in the building. Uh, we thought speaking on, on C.S. Lewis, we should have a good um, English weather. Uh, and, so, and so we prayed in the rain and uh, got more than we asked for. Um, now to him who's able to do exceeding abundantly above all you can ask or imagine, right? Um, this is above and beyond all we asked or imagined. So um, thrilled that you're with us. We had a couple questions people asking about, hey, where can we hear more of um, Dr. Jerry Root? For what he has, um, the time that he spent with us here, the weekend message is online on our listen and watch page. And then uh, these two messages are, will also be on the listen and watch page of TimberlineChurch.org. Um, and then the, the broader C.S. Lewis um, series that we've done, which includes last week and will include next week, that I will be closing us up on, will also be on there, if you're interested. And uh, Dr. Jerry Root is on YouTube about a million and four videos, so you can catch a lot of his lectures. If you want to go deeper, he's given lectures on particular things like the screw tape letters, and he's gone through each section of those. So if you really, uh, really want to go deep, uh, I would encourage you to listen to those. They're wonderful. Wonderful. So we are thrilled to have Dr. Jerry Root with us um, tonight. Again, this will be the last night that he's with us. <clears throat> Just as we did last week, Pastor Donnie and I, uh, maybe the last 10 minutes or so, we will be roaming the uh, auditorium here with microphones and would love to have your questions. So tonight, as, as Jerry is teaching on these particular issues of the intellectual barriers that Lewis faced, uh, faced in, in coming from faith, moving from atheism to faith, Jot down some questions that you might have, and um, we'll spend some time in Q&A at the end, okay? Um, I think that's it. I think those are the, all of these. Would you please give a warm Timberline welcome to Dr. Jerry Root. I'm, I'm grateful again to be here with you. You guys are so kind to me. Um, I'm, I'm less impressed with myself than other people are. So, so anyway, be, uh, be mindful of the fact that I, I'm happy to be here and I don't think that, you know, I, I just, I'm a pea brain and I'm aware of that. And I think all of us to some degree are, but I'm happy to share with you out of the things that I've studied throughout my life. And if it will encourage you, then that makes me happy. And if we look at C.S. Lewis's barriers to faith, and you meet somebody who's struggling with one of those barriers, maybe you'll find what we talk about this evening helpful as you usher other people or nudge other people a little closer to Christ. And that's a good thing. Um, let me open again with a word of prayer. Gracious Lord, um, there's so much we don't know, and there's so much to know I thank you that we don't have to be threatened by what we don't know, but instead we could look at these things with a sense of wonder, that we can grow and we can learn more. And every place where we learn, if we're thinking about things properly, with faith integration, we discover something of you, and that pleases us. We want to know you, Lord. 
and we want to follow you, and we want to love you with our heart, our soul, our strength, and our mind. Please, Lord, in some way, nurture us towards being closer at, at fulfilling that desire and that aspiration. Again, I pray, recognizing that what I offer are just crumbs, but your son once took crumbs, five loaves and two fish, and fed the multitude, and they left satisfied. Would your Holy Spirit please do something like that among us this evening, where he takes the words that are given, the crumbs that are given, and he multiplies them so that each person here would hear something that speaks to his or her heart and encourages them. And we ask this all in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I believe that. And that's why I pray, Lord, it's one person offering something. How's that going to connect with everybody else? Unless there's some sort of segue that takes place because the Holy Spirit who loves you gave you what you needed. Every once in a while somebody comes up and says, oh, you spoke at something and I got so much out of it. I said, then let's stop and worship Jesus because he answered our prayer. He gave you what you needed. That was a sign that he was individualizing his love for you. And it moves me deeply, very much so. So anyway, um, we've spoken of the deep longings last night and Lewis's quest to find the object of his heart's desire. And tonight, I want us to consider how he moved from atheism to Christianity. I suppose it's a little bit of an aggressive evening because we're going to cover atheism, agnosticism, materialism. We're going to cover the doctrine of the Trinity, why, why Christianity over the other religions, and we're going to solve the problem of evil, all in this little bit of time. <laughs> so that means then that these topics are all way more complex and we'll have time to look at. But I think we can give you a skeletal structure for how you might think about these things. And then if something's intriguing, you could go dig deeper on your own and grow. And I hope that will be helpful to you. Lewis was raised in the Church of Ireland. His maternal grandfather was the pastor of the church and baptized him there at St. Mark's in, in Strandtown. And you can go see it. It's really interesting. When his uh, father died, Lewis and his brother sold their boyhood home and and they um, took money from the home and they put up a stained glass window in honor of his father and mother. And you can go see all that. It's very interesting. But he was raised in the church and his mother got cancer and he died when he was only nine years old. She died when he was nine. He prayed she would live and she died. And this is what vectored him away from faith. He said, I don't think this thing is, is real. I think it must be a crock. And so consequently, he said he was an atheist by the time he was 12. We'll talk about why that's problematic in a minute. But nevertheless, as time passed, he discovered that atheism was insufficient as a worldview, and slowly over the years, he made his way back to the Christian faith. And he became an adult convert to Christianity when he was 33 years old, September 28, 19. 31. Well, let's look first at his atheism. Um, he makes it clear that negative knowledge is more difficult to assert than positive knowledge. When you talk to somebody and they say they're an atheist, always get them to define the term. Um, if you don't define the terms, you'll find you're talking like this. Get them to define the term. Make sure you're on the same page. 
And I can give you an example just based on some things Lewis said. My, my uh, college roommate, bo both of us were PE majors. We were kind of doofuses, you know. Our academic interest was staying eligible for sports. We didn't have much academic interest beyond that. He went on to become a medical doctor. I went on to become a full professor. And we're both convinced that if our professors would have known where we were going to end up, they would have fi failed us just to keep us from being fostered on the rest of the world. <laughs> but we were going to take a trip overseas together. And, and because of COVID, it got canceled. So he said, I know that you're not scheduled for anything. Fly out to where I am. He lives up in Grass Valley between Sacramento and Lake Tahoe. And he says, I've got a, a, a motorhome, and let's go to Half Moon Bay, and we'll hang out for a week, and we'll do e-bikes. I didn't even know what an e-bike was. We'll hang out, and we'll ride around. So we were riding around for about four hours a day, and the rest of the time, we were, we were um, talking. Isn't it great to have old friends you can visit with? So he said, okay, let's ride. I want you to see this one outcropping, and the waves are crashing on the rocks below, and it's really magnificent. We went there, and it was breathtaking. All of a sudden, this other couple comes riding up, and we're extolling the beauty, and they're engaged in it too. They're in awe. And then I said to the man, isn't it nice to know who to thank? And he got real huffy, and he says, I'm an atheist. I said, I'll bet I can convince you in 15 minutes you're not. <laughs> he said, try. So I said, OK, define for me what an atheist is. He says, an atheist believes there's absolutely no possibility God exists. I said, I don't think that you have the capacity to make that judgment. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you made a universal judgment. Widener Library at Harvard University has 19 million volumes under that roof. Can you tell me without a doubt that there's nothing in any of those volumes that counts against what you just said just now about no possibility God exists? He said, well, no. I said, OK, the universal negative judgment is harder to make than the positive one. C.S. Lewis said, to say there's no spider in this room, I'd have to check every nook and cranny to make it count. To say there is a spider, I could see one scurrying across the floor. Now, arguments for God's existence are more complex than seeing a spider scurry across the floor. But the analogy still works to show you how difficult it is to make that universal judgment. And I'll give you some other examples. Um, there was J.L. Mackey. He was an Oxford University uh, don, a fellow, voting member of the faculty. And he wrote a book called The Miracle of Theism. And he said he, was a, he claimed to be an atheist. But he said the only real miracle is that stupid people believe that God exists. Basil Mitchell, who was my doctoral supervisor, was on the same philosophy faculty. Mitchell was a Christian. And I said, come on. J.L. Mackey was a philosopher at Oxford. He must have seen the weakness in the atheist position that nobody could make such a universal judgment. And he said, it's true. If we confronted him, he would always back down. And yet here he is writing popular literature for people to try and get them to become atheists, and he's being intellectually dishonest. And this is problematic, I think. So anyway, I, I, I said to this man, going through and talking about Lewis's spider illustration, the universal judgment, and, and, and so on, and this guy at Half Moon Bay said, you're right. I'm not an atheist. 
I'm an agnostic. And I said, well, I prefer an honest agnostic to a dishonest atheist any day. <laughs> and I said, but if you got the atheism one wrong, maybe you're getting the agnostic one wrong, too. And he said, what do you got for me? <laughs> I said, I'll send you a copy of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And I sent it to him. I had my return address on it. I didn't have my email on it. Two weeks later, I get an email from this guy. And he said, I read the book. I'm moving in your direction. And that, 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 that shows you the weakness of the atheist position. And Lewis understood this. Um, there, there, there is a, a, a book that was written by Mortimer Adler, the philosopher at University of Chicago. And it was called How to Think About God, A Guide for the 20th Century Skeptic. Came out in 1980. I remember reading it years ago. And he said, asserted in that book, that he set forth arguments for God's existence that were beyond a reasonable doubt. Basically, he set forth uh, August, uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas's uh, four um, causes and Thomas, uh, excuse me, Aristotle's four causes and Thomas Aquinas's five ways. It's a very convincing book. But I read it, and, and Adler said he wasn't a Christian, but he set forth arguments beyond a reasonable doubt. And I go, wow, what's going on? His wife was a Christian, and she put him up to writing this book. Eminent philosopher. He's the guy who put together the great books of the Western world, and he's also the guy that was the last editor-in-chief of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Towering intellect, wrote about 60 books. So I started praying for him every day. And, and, and I, I remember after two years, I said, I should see if I could visit with him. So I called his secretary and said, does he ever meet with mere mortals for lunch? And, and she said, yeah, he does on occasion. I said, where does he like to go to lunch? She says, crickets or Lowry's. Those are the two most expensive restaurants in Chicago. I said, put me out for about six months. It's going to take me that long to save up to go to lunch with him. And we go to lunch. And while we're talking, in the midst of the conversation, I said to him, I read his book. And I'd been praying for him every day. And I was wondering where he was at in his own spiritual pilgrimage. And he kind of got you know, frustrated. And I said, if you want to tell me it's none of my business, that's OK. He says, it's none of your business. And then he totally let down his guard and talked to me about all these deep interpersonal things he was wrestling with. And we had a two-hour conversation. It was great. He didn't come to faith. But I said, could we do this again? I wanted to say next week, but I thought that was a little pretentious. I said, in six months. He says, yeah, let's go in six months. So there's another prophet, Wheaton, who came with me, which meant we got to split the bill, made it a little easier. <laughs> and we had great conversation with him. He didn't come to faith still. We set up another appointment for six months later. His secretary called me and said, the State Department wants him to go to China. He wants to meet with you, but we'll do it a couple weeks from now. And then she called me up and said, by the way, um, William F. Buckley wants him on firing line in Washington, D.C., so he needs to change the thing again. And so we changed it again. And then two weeks later, she calls me up. Her name was Marlos. And she said, Jerry, he went into the hospital, deathly ill. We don't expect him to come out alive. I just was brokenhearted. Two, week, two days later, I read in the Chicago Tribune, Mortimer Adler has become a Christian. And he recovered. He lived another 19 years. He preached sermons, wrote books about faith. When I had talked with him, I said, how come? You, you, it's all there. You say it's beyond a reasonable doubt. How come you're not a Christian? And he says, 
I haven't been given the gift of faith yet. Well, I found out later, he went to a church with his wife, that the pastor of the church was a guy who had been a Southern Baptist guy who started to like liturgy, became an Anglican so that he could get involved in the liturgical practices. And when Adler was on his deathbed, this guy went and visited him and shared the gospel with him, and Adler trusted Christ. I remember one time I was asked to go to that church, St. Chrysostom's, and teach on C.S. Lewis, and I said, I'm there, I'll do it in a heartbeat, but I wanna know one thing. What were the details about Mortimer Adler coming to faith? And they told me. I tell you this for just this. The atheist position is a weak position. And, and why do people embrace it then? One time I had a chance to talk with Madeline Marie O'Hare. Do you remember that name? She was a Dawkins and Hitchens of, of my era. And, and I talked with her for an hour, just the two of us, one on one. She wasn't an atheist any more than you or I are atheists. She was mad because she was ill-treated by some Christians. And she told me very explicitly, I am a promiscuous person, and I will not give up my promiscuity. And if I were to embrace faith, I would have to change. And I'm not going to change. Her son, who was the one she argued all the way to the Supreme Court to get prayer out of schools, her son became a Christian. Not only that, he became a pastor. Not only that, he became a Christian apologist. Not only that, he's now a missionary in Syria working with people in Syria to point them to Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it? There isn't really an honest intellectual place for atheism. You can, have a, you can have a person who's an agnostic and they're struggling. We can talk about that in a moment. But Lewis saw the problem. There's an area in philosophy called ontology, ontology. It, it comes from a Greek word, ontos, which is a participle form of the Greek verb eimi, eimi, means I am. So the participle just means being, being. And that area in philosophy that deals with itself, with, with, with being in existence, the basic question of ontology is in a universe of contingent things, why does anything exist at all? Furthermore, if nothing existed necessarily and non-contingently, nothing would exist now. Remember when you were a kid and you had a string of dominoes and you'd put up the string in the coffee table in the living room? Something outside the dominoes had to be there to set it up. And when you went to push the first one over, and hopefully if you set them up, you got to push the first one over before your little brother or sister pushed the first one over. And then a new string of contingencies happened. You slugged your brother and sister. You pushed the first one over. Something outside of the string of dominoes had to exist to knock them all down. A contingent thing is something that has something else that accounts for its existence. You're here contingently upon the fact that your parents got together years ago, you were conceived. You're here because you had so many meals. You had so much sleep. You had so much in your own personal development. All these are contingencies. Your parents were there because there was somebody who was there before them. You can't have a string of contingencies ad infinitum. If it's possible for a thing not to be, or to be, then there must have been a time when nothing existed unless something was prior to the existence of all other things. Something is necessary. And Lewis, Lewis began to see this. And he saw the atheist position was not a, a fair-minded position. Matter of fact, um, if you want a window into Lewis's thinking about this, he wrote an essay called The Seeing Eye. I want to read you a few excerpts from this uh, essay. The, the, the thing that prompted it was, remember who the first astronaut was? It was Yuri Gagarin. 
the Russian Soviet cosmonaut. He went up, did one revolution around the Earth, landed, and said, there's no God that exists. I was in outer space, and I didn't see him. <laughs> and, and, and there was a, a pastor, uh, W.A. Criswell, in Dallas, Texas, who got in his pulpit that next Sunday and said, if that Soviet cosmonaut really wanted to see God, all he had to have done was step outside of his space capsule, and he would have seen him in a hurry. <laughs> Well, Lewis responded to the same statement by Gagarin. Only he's, 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 maybe it's not quite as humorous, but it's very perceptive what he wrote. He said, the Russians, I am told, report that they have not found God in outer space. On the other hand, a good many people in many different times and countries claim to have found God or been found by God here on Earth. The conclusion some want us to draw from these data is that God does not exist. As a corollary, those who think they have met him on earth were suffering from a delusion. But other conclusions might be drawn. He gives two sort of nonsensical ones, and he gives two that are substantive. One, we've not yet gone far enough in space. There have been ships on the Atlantic for a good time before America was discovered. Two, God does exist, but is locally confined to this planet. Three, the Russians did find God in space without knowing it because they lacked the requisite apparatus for detecting him. Or four, God does exist, but is not an object either located in a particular part of space, nor diffused as we once thought ether was throughout space. The first two conclusions do not interest me. The sort of religion for which they could be a defense would be a religion for savages, the belief in a local deity who could be contained in a particular temple, island, or grove. That, in fact, seems to be the sort of religion about which the Russians, or some Russians, and a good many people in the West are being irreligious. It is not in the least disquieting that no astronauts have discovered a god of that sort. The really disquieting thing would be if they had. The third and fourth conclusions are the ones for my money. Looking for God or heaven by exploring space is like reading or seeing all Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you will find Shakespeare as one of the characters or Stratford as one of the places. Shakespeare is in one sense present in every moment in every play. But he's never present in the same way as Falstaff or Lady Macbeth. If there were an idiot who thought that plays existed on their own without an author, not to mention actors, producer, managers, stagehands, and whatnot, our belief in Shakespeare would not be much affected by his saying quite truly that he had studied all the plays and never found Shakespeare in them. Now, of course, this is only an analogy, and I'm not suggesting at all that the existence of God is as easily established as the existence of Shakespeare. My point is that if God does exist, he is related to the universe more as an author is related to a play than as one object in the universe is related to another. If God created the universe, he created space-time, which is to the universe as the meter is to a poem or the key is to music. To look for him as one item within the framework which he himself invented is nonsensical. If God, such a God as any adult religion believes in, exists, mere movement in space will never bring you any nearer to him or farther from him than you are at this very moment. You can neither reach him nor avoid him by traveling to Alpha Centauri or even to other galaxies. A fish is no more wet and no less in the sea after it has swum a thousand miles than when it first set out. And Lewis is seeing this, that God exists, but he exists in the universe more as a relationship of an author to a play. And, and this shows you where he was going in his thinking in this regard. 
Um, but a bright atheist might respond, you Christians say God is omnipresent, then isn't, it, isn't my not perceiving him in any given space I happen to occupy enough to say no God such as you Christians say exists can possibly exist? I think that's a fair question to ask. And, and Lewis struggled with it, and I'll tell you what he wrote about it in just a moment. I, I, I can give you a little example. My oldest son's name is Jeremy. He has 178 IQ. You know how hard it is to raise a son who's so much smarter than you? And he was very bright, very precocious. When he was five years old, I was getting ready to put him to bed. And he said, Dad, I'm afraid. He was never afraid to go to bed, but this night he was. I said, it's okay, Jeremy. Jesus will be with you. Well, what about my sister, Alicia? That was also unlike him to be concerned about his sister, Alicia. I said, Jesus will be with her too. Well, what about you and mom? Jesus will be with us. Dad, how could Jesus be with me and be with Alicia and be with you and mom? So now he's starting to ask the question of the bright atheist. If I can't see him, you know, how do I know he's there? And so I told him, because he's looking for an embodied or corporeal understanding of God. And I said to him, basically this, that God was omnipresent. He said, what does that mean? I said, it means ubiquitous, so go to bed and stop worrying about it. <laughs> no, <clears throat> I said, omni is a, is a Latin prefix, and it means all. And omnipresent means he's all present. He's everywhere. And he said, Dad, if he's everywhere, how come I can't see him or touch him? And I don't know about you, but in a moment like that, I start praying. I know people whose parents said some dumb things to them when they were young, and it caused their life to vector. And I just say, Lord, 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 here's my young son. Help me not say something that will confuse him. Help me to say something that will help him understand the complexity and get his little five-year-old mind around it. And we had a, a lead mold. And we would take lead, and we would heat it up, and we'd put a dipper in the mold, and we'd fill the lead mold, and, and so on. And he knew about that. He had done it with me. I said, Jeremy, you know our lead mold? He said, yeah. If I pour lead in the mold, it fills up the whole mold. Mold. Is there any room for anything else in that mold? Oh, no, Dad. I said, what if God was like lead? And he filled up your whole bedroom. You could see him, and you could touch him, would there be anything else in your bedroom? He says, oh, no, Dad, it would push everything out. It would push my bed out. It would push my toy box out, everything. I said, okay, so if God is omnipresent like that lead that you can see and touch, in the universe, would there be anything room for anything else? He said, oh, no, Dad, it would push everything out of the universe. I said, okay, if God exists in a way that is omnipresent, then there must be a way that that existence could be there and there would also be room for other things. And I talked with him then about immateriality. And he began to get it. And Lewis wrote it this way. God does not fill space as a body fills it in the sense that parts of him are in different parts of space, excluding other objects from them, pushing them out, in other words. Yet he is everywhere totally present at every point of space, according to good theologians. Consequently, Lewis talks about the fact that if God is omnipresent in a way that is compatible with material things, and there's an immateriality, then we must meet the, the, the uh, principles of perception. 
In this room right now, there are all kinds of things bouncing around that we're not aware of. Maybe somebody sneezed and there's some microbes floating around. Or there's uh, maybe some beer commercials going on, right? There's a radio broadcast somewhere and there's all this stuff floating around. And none of us are meeting the principles of perception. We haven't set up a radio receiver. Or maybe we don't have our Wi-Fi set up. That stuff's compatible with our being in here. It goes on, what are the principles of perception? And Lewis says we have to be ready to meet God halfway. He's made himself known to us in some senses. So the atheist also has to not only look beyond their materialism, but they have to recognize that their materialism is the supporting worldview that backs up their atheism. And, and, and basically there are three, this is again, skeletal structure. We can go deeper with this and wider. There's basically three materialistic positions. <clears throat> One position is there is no God and everything that we see in the universe just happened. Just happened. I don't think anybody really takes that position overly seriously. You'll see it floating around in popular society, but I don't think they take it seriously. Plato and the Timaeus wrote, now everything that becomes or is created must of necessity be created by something, by some cause. For without a cause, nothing can be created. Lewis put it like this, it is clear that there was never a time when nothing existed, otherwise nothing would exist now. So this view that uh, it just happened, um, it can't be taken very seriously. It violates the central canon of logic. Two mutually exclusive statements can't both be true. It can't be that there was nothing and something just happened. Now, how many of you ever saw the Carl Sagan series on television called Cosmo? It was brilliant. The guy was a brilliant astrophysicist. Uh, he worked at Yerkes uh, uh, Observatory up in uh, uh, Williams Bay, Wisconsin. I've been to his lab before. It's fascinating to see the things he discovered. He's a brilliant man. He was a brilliant physicist, but a very bad metaphysicist. And so in that series, he'd talk about the universe and the balance of the universe and how the Earth is tilted. I think it's like 20, maybe 17% tilt or 20%. I don't remember the exact numbers. And he talked about how it was perfectly balanced. And if it was a little bit one way or the other, we'd all be fried or we wouldn't receive the sun's rays properly. And he just talks about the balance of it. He talked about the balance of the heavens and the balance of the physical universe. And then he would say... And it's amazing. It just all happened. Just by chance. Boy, when I was a boy, I remember, if I would have taken crayons and colored on the wall and discarded them and then started playing with another toy, if my mom would have come in and said, Jerry, what's all that marking on the wall? And if I said to her, I don't know, Mom. I, I think it just happened. <laughs> I'd have been spanked twice. Once for marking on the wall, once for lying. How come Carl Sagan got away with it when he said it just happened? Again, brilliant astrophysicist, not a clear uh, metaphysicist. And that's a problem. And so this, this doesn't work. You, you all know the example of Aaron with the golden calf. Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. He comes down and the children of Israel are breaking all the Ten Commandments even as he's receiving them. And he goes up to Aaron and he said, what possessed you that you made this golden calf and had the people worship it? He says, oh, you know how obnoxious these people are. 
They wanted a God to worship. I asked them for their golden earrings. I put it in this pot and I smelted it and out came this calf. Do you remember reading that? And you just laugh your head off. Why? Because it's illogical. It's nonsensical. And, and so I think, too, that it just happened view is not one that anybody takes really seriously when you press the point. Another view, though, for the materialist is that matter is eternal. Matter's always existed. And it just sort of uh, reconforms in different, due to different forces and so on. Um, this is one people take a little more seriously. <clears throat> but there's a weakness, and Lewis saw this. Matter of fact, he even writes in Surprised by Joy, his autobiography, when he was an atheist, he had to have a worldview to support his view, and he thought that matter just happened, and there's, there's my understanding. But as he thought deeper on it, he realized, if that's so, where do ideas come from? Where does thought come from? When was the last time you had a meaningful discussion with a rock? Something has to morph where you go from mere matter to ideas and where you go from mere uh, matter to concerns for justice or even love. And Lewis said at that point in his life, <clears throat> he would say, oh, well, wait a minute. It's, it's all matter. The lovers don't really love each other. The man looks at the woman. She projects an image on the retina of his eye. Through a series of electrical synapses, it travels along the optic nerve, stimulates his brain, and causes the secretion of particular hormones. He says it's love, but it's just chemistry, just matter. And Lewis fell under that spell. He writes about it in Miracles, his book Miracles, and shows the weakness of that materialist position. He writes about it in Surprised by Joy, and he writes about it in some of his other essays. Because at that moment, as he thought about it, he thought, well, wait a second. The materialist says it's just chemistry, but he wants you to believe his explanation is valid. If the, if the lovers can't look at each other and really be in love, it's just chemistry, why do we believe then that the materialist is giving us an explanation that's anything more than chemistry. For they look at the lovers, an image is projected on the retina of their eye through a series of electrical synapses, a message travels along their optic nerve, stimulates the brain, causes secretion of particular hormones, and they say explanation. Lewis says the whole view explains reason out of existence, explains explanation out of existence. And Lewis came to the conclusion where he says, I cannot believe reason is mere cerebral biochemistry. There's got to be something more there. And Lewis was wrestling with that. The, the other option, it would be that there must be something immaterial that must be eternal. Something immaterial that could be the cause behind all of these things. And Lewis came to that conclusion. But he also uh, moved towards being an agnostic. An agnostic says, I, I don't really know. And basically, he talks about three types of agnostics. There's a dogmatic agnostic who says, I don't know, you don't know, nobody can know. Who is that person? That's the atheist who sees the, the problem in the atheist position, and so they cloak themselves like the wolf in sheep's clothing. It's the atheist, basically, an agnostic garb. And, and I, I could say, I don't know, that might be fair. I could say, maybe I don't think you know because you've got contradiction in what you say. But as soon as I extend it, nobody can know. I'm like the guy who hasn't read all the books at the Widener Library again. And it's overstated. It's an atheist disguising themselves as an agnostic.
Well, then there's the disinterested agnostic who says, I don't know, and frankly, I don't care. I don't think that's an academically credible position about God to say that. Pascal and his wager, I'm sure you've all read it before. Pascal and his wager said um, that there, there's, there's ways to look at this. I, I, I could say, um, um, there's my, my wife's flash of lightning and total darkness. Um, <laughs> The, the, the wager is if I'm gambling here, and what am I suggesting? I'm, I'm, I'm basically suggesting that, uh, I'm suggesting we move on to the next point. <laughs> the, the, I don't know why I'm drawing a blank on this right now. Somebody know Pascal's wager, want to throw out the first thing? Yeah, oh, I believe, huh? Yeah. I, if I believe, if I believe, and, and I'm right, I gain everything. If I believe and I'm wrong, I lose nothing. If I disbelieve and I'm right, I gain nothing. If I disbelieve and I'm wrong, I lose everything. Only in this wager, Pascal makes it clear, I'm not wagering uh, francs and centimes in his day, or euros, or dollars and cents. I'm wagering my eternal destiny on this issue. It doesn't prove that there's a God, but it shows why the agnostic position is not so much a tenable position. Now, there was a guy named Robert Ekvall. And Robert, Robert Ekvall was a missionary in Tibet. He was actually a Wheaton grad years and years ago. And he said he started meeting with this Tibetan Buddhist monk, and they developed a friendship over six months. But every time he talked to the monk, the monk wasn't so feeling like he needed to commit to any kind of Christian position because he believed in reincarnation and he'd get the lives that he needed for what he was going to do. And he would keep coming back reincarnated and so on. Finally, Ekval said this, this monk came to him and said, after six months, I want to become a Christian. And Ekval led him to Christ. And he said, what made the change for you? He said, I started thinking about it. If you're right, and if I'm right and you're wrong, you're going to get his many lives as you need till you put it together. But if you're right and I'm wrong, then this is the only life I get. I'm gonna make a decision for Christ because I'm gonna hedge my bets here. <laughs> and and, and it's, a, it's Pascal's wager in an Eastern context of sorts. But nevertheless, you start looking at this stuff about the disinterested agnostic, I don't know and frankly I don't care. Mortimer Adler in his essay on God, by the way, Adler discovered in many years' study, that there were 102 major ideas discussed in Western civilization. I heard him once giving a lecture, and he said to these students, he didn't think he became educated till he was 60 years old. Students shot up his hand and said, Dr. Adler, you said you didn't think you were educated till you were 60. To make that judgment, you've got to have a standard. What's the standard? And he says there's 102 major ideas discussed in Western civilization. He wrote an essay on each one, showing where it begins and how it developed over history. And he said, I think you have to have a working knowledge of those 102 ideas. Not an exhaustive knowledge, but one where you understand what's at play in those ideas. Have you ever been in a, in a discussion group and you're going to read books and discuss them? And somebody says, hey, this month let's read uh, C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce. And the next month, somebody says, hey, let's read um, uh, Jane Austen's uh, Pride and Prejudice. 
And the next month, somebody says, let's read War and Peace. And nobody shows up that week because they're all guilty they couldn't get the book done in that short of time. But what if you instead had a reading group where you read one of these essays a week or one of these essays a month? In 10 years, you'd be educated. Well, as Adler put this stuff together and looked combed, he spent $2.5 million in 1948 and 49. I don't know what that would be equivalent to by today's standard, to have researchers cull through all the great books. And, and he found these 102 ideas. You know what the number one idea is discussed in Western civilization? Nothing even compares to it. The idea of God. And number, number two is knowledge. How do you know and how do you know you know? That's pretty significant. Number three is man. We're mysteries to ourselves. We, we want to understand what human nature is. Number four was the state. Number five was love. In his essay on God, he says, more consequences for thought and action follow from an affirmation or denial of the existence of God than any other single subject. For somebody to say, I'm agnostic about this, I don't care, they're really not understanding what's at play. Uh, when, when Brothers Karamazov was written by Fyodor Dostoevsky, he's, he's toying with this concept. If there is no God, there is no morality. But if there is a God, there is a morality. And, and, and you've got this one character, and I don't know if you've read the book, but you've got Fyodor Karamazov, the father. He's a womanizer, he's a despicable person. He has his sons. His oldest son is Dmitri. Dmitri's a bit of a womanizer. He's, he's hounded by the Karamazov sensuality. And, and Dmitri and the father are always in conflict. And also, the father uh, likes this woman named Grushenka. And, and also, uh, um, the son, Dmitri, likes this woman, Grushenka. She's a woman of kind of questionable character. So that increases the conflict between these two. But... Um, you've got the son, Dmitri, who's engaged to a woman named Katrina. And he's got a younger brother named Ivan. And Ivan kind of likes Katrina, so there's conflict between those two. And not only that, it's Ivan who's the prototypical Bolshevik who says if there is no God, there is no morality. You can do whatever you want to. There's another brother named Alyosha or Alexei. That's the problem with Russian novels. You've got to constantly keep a glossary or you get all the names confused. If it's William and they start referring him to Bill, we understand that. So here's Alyosha, though, who Alyosha has fallen under the tutelage of an, a, an Orthodox monk named Zosima. And, and, and Alyosha is, is deeply committed to Christ. But something happens that causes him to have a, 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 a moment of disequilibrium in his faith, and he's struggling with doubt. And he gets word that Grushenka hears that he's a, a man of character, and she says, I don't believe those men exist. You bring him by, and I'll compromise him, and I'll show you what kind of man he is. And he goes to see Grushenka, and he worries that if he goes, maybe his faith is a house of cards. He goes, and he sees good in her. And that's off-putting to her. And so she backs off from any kind of design she has on him. And they have deep spiritual conversation. It's powerful. There's another brother, Smirnikov. Smirnikov was the son of the village idiot named Lizaveta. And Lizaveta becomes pregnant. She can't talk. They don't know how she became impregnated. But everybody sus suspects that it's the father, Fyodor Dostoevsky. 
And Lizaveta climbs over the compound, gives birth and dies in birth. And Fyodor raises Smerdikov as a serf or a servant in his home. Smerdikov hates the father. Big argument breaks out between Dmitri and Fyodor. And the next morning, Fyodor is dead. And everybody suspects that it was Dmitri who committed the murder. In the meantime, Smerdikov goes to see Ivan, the one who said, if there is no God, there is no morality, everything is permissible. And he says to Ivan, I did it. I committed the murder, and I got it so that it got passed off on Dmitri, and everybody thinks it's Dmitri. And Ivan says, what did you do? Well, you said, if there is no God, there is no morality. Everything is permissible. And the whole book is basically an explanation of how bankrupt that view is. There's no room for being apathetic about the idea of agnosticism. I don't know, and I don't care. The agnostic position that has the most credit is the one that says, I don't know, but I'd like to. And I'm not going to leave a stone unturned until I get to this place. And consequently then, as Lewis wrestles through these, he says, I think it's a religious question that we've got to deal with here. And the religious question. The religious question works like this. Lewis, in this part of his pilgrimage, came across a book by Rudolf Otto called The Idea of the Holy. It's a great book to read. He felt it was one of the 10 best books he read. If you want Lewis's summary, pick up The Problem of Pain and look at the introductory chapter where Lewis summarizes the argument in Otto's book. And it basically works this way. Uh, as Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, if you're a Christian, you don't have to believe everything about the other religions is necessarily false. Um, the, all religions have more in common with each other than any of us would have with a materialist. Because we at least believe there's something transcendent, something divine and other. But if you're a Christian, you have to believe that which is uh, unique to Christianity is true, and the other religions are false. So what are the common things? And as Otto identifies them, and as Lewis repeats them in The Problem of Pain, he says, number one, all the religions believe in some transcendent other. They'll define it differently if they're an animist, a pantheist, a polytheist, a dualist, a monotheist, or a monotheistic Trinitarian, but they all believe in some transcendent other. Number two, all the great religions in the world believe in a moral law that people fail to keep. Number three, all the great world religions believe that God is the custodian of the moral law. So if we've failed, we've failed the uh, transcendent other. And it puts us in a precarious position. How do we fix what's broken? All the other religions come up with a new set of rituals that I could engage in so that I could somehow merit the favor of the divine if I do something noteworthy or meritorious. Um, there was also the question of the Trinity, and Lewis was trying to figure that out. And, and consequently, let me see if I could put it together, these things about the religious, these three common things in religion and the doctrine of Trinity. I was uh, coming back for some lectures, and Wheaton College had a thing where you could get a limo uh, system that would pick up professors if they're flying in or out and, and deliver us back to campus. This guy's picking me up, and he says, I'm taking you to Wheaton College. What do you do there? I said, well, I'm, I'm a professor. He said, what are you a professor of? I said, well, my degrees in philosophy of religion. He said, what religion are you? I said, I'm a Christian. How about you? He says, I'm a Muslim. 
His name was Hafiz Muhammad. I get in the car and he says, what's the difference between Christianity and Islam? And I said, well, I'll defer to you on matters of Islam. I've probably read about a quarter, maybe two-fifths of the Quran. I haven't read the whole thing. But, but I've, I know my Bible fairly well, but I do know this. Your Quran says that, that um, you don't believe in a God of Trinity. I said, that's a huge difference between us. He said, well, how does it work? I said, well, let me ask you three questions. Number one, do you believe God's a contingent being, some cause for his existence, or a non-contingent being? He said, well, I, I believe he's non-contingent. Nothing is his cause. I said, okay, second question. Do you believe God's a God of love? You might expect the Muslim would say, I believe he's just or merciful or good, but I've had this conversation with at least 200 Muslims over the years, and they all say they believe he's a God of love. I said, okay, my third question, who's the object of his love? And they're reduced to saying we are. Creation is. I said, you just contradicted yourself, because if God needs us to fulfill his nature, he's a contingent being then and not a non-contingent being. Relational attributes like love in a non-contingent being presuppose that relationship must be necessary in that being. And Hafiz said, I'm tracking with you. This is a fundamental conflict with non-Trinitarian monotheism. I'm tracking with you, he said. And I said, well, Hafiz, let me go a step further. And I pulled out Rudolf Otto, again, using Lewis to help me witness to this guy. And I went through those three statements. I said, you know, if there's a God, then, then um, we have to begin to believe that something numinous, something divine, something transcendent is out there. And secondly, we have to believe there's a moral law that people fail to keep. And thirdly, we have to believe that the divine is the custodian of the moral law, so if we fail to keep it, we've offended the divine. He stopped and he says, I'm tracking with you. He said, I believe in God, and I believe in the supernatural, and I believe in hell, and I don't want to go there. And I'm doing the best I know how to keep from going there. And I said, and how's that working for you, Hafiz? And he said, I live in fear. I live in fear. And I said, you don't have to be afraid. And with hope, he said, how's that? And I talked with him about the fact you can't do anything to fix what's broken, but you can depend upon what God did for you to fix it. And Lewis got to that place in his own life. And he said, okay, if God exists and he's out there somewhere, how do I get to know him? I can't get to know God personally any more than Hamlet could get to know Shakespeare, he writes in his autobiography. And then in time, he said, wait a minute, I realized my analogy was a good one. If Hamlet ever wanted to get to know Shakespeare, he couldn't break out of the play to get to know the author. But Shakespeare, the author, could have written himself into the play as Shakespeare character and made the introduction between Shakespeare and Hamlet possible. And Lewis says, I think that's what happened in the Incarnation. And Lewis, shortly after that, has a late night conversation with uh, J.R.R. Tolkien 
And that was the piece that finally put him over, and he began to see how the whole thing with grace and Christ-centeredness worked. Well, anyway, that, that's getting through the big things. That's a skeletal structure. You could flesh it out further. That problem of evil, we've got to do with, deal with that. How much time do we have, Brent? Ten minutes. Okay, we're going to solve the problem of evil in ten minutes. <laughs> um, you've got pre prelim preliminary considerations. How this thing affects us at one moment may affect us differently. I mentioned it last night about the guy whose wife was dying of cancer and he was so angry and so on and then was so moved because his wife did better. Um, you, you, at different stages in your life, you approach these things differently because you're, you're, you're getting some pain Anger, maybe? Tears? Maybe you find in time some resolution and so on. Um, there's another thing that I think is important here are some definitions. Uh, there's a word, theodicy. Not theology, theodicy. comes from two Greek words. Theos meaning God and dike, which means justice or righteousness. It's the discussion of the justification of God given the fact that evil exists in the world. How do we resolve this? And you have these different views in theodicy, in both philosophical theodicy and theological theodicy. Uh, one view is uh, there's a kind of free will approach to the problem. Evil is a consequence of the ill use of free will. Uh, another approach, and that's Augustine and Boethius who argue that. They're kind of the fountainhead for that position, and it develops throughout our Western tradition. Another view is a soul-making theodicy. This comes from St. Irenaeus. We may suffer, but somehow in the midst of our suffering, we can cultivate courage, fortitude, character, virtue, and so on. So you have the soul-making theodicy, and you have the free will theodicy. Lewis, as he picks up on it, says in his book, The Problem of Pain, quoting Thomas Aquinas, if anything exists, excuse me, nothing which implies contradiction exists in the divine omnipotence. Nothing which implies contradiction exists in the divine omnipotence. That means there's some things God can't do. If, if, if God, if God uh, is good, he can't do evil. If God is loving, he can't be unloving. If God is just, he can't be unfair. If God is um, uh, immutable and unchanging, he can't be capricious. God is consistent and all-powerful to do that which is consistent with his nature. He can't do anything contrary to his nature. That means if God creates a world with certain principles, he can't both create it and not create it at the same time. He doesn't do nonsense. One time I was getting into a cupboard at my house, and, and I opened the cupboard, and a pipe wrench fell on the ground. So I picked up the pipe wrench, but I forgot the cupboard door was left open. And when I stood up, I banged my head. You know, the Bible says God has the hairs of our head numbered, which means he knows less and less about some of us every day. <laughs> My head was bleeding, and in that moment, I let God know what I thought of his universe, but what did I really want God to do? Did I really want cupboard doors not to stay where they were? Did I want a universe that operates that way? Did I want to get on an airplane when the laws of aerodynamics are sound, and all of a sudden the laws of aerodynamics change mid-flight? Do I want to park my car at a mall? and then come back out to get in it and find out now it's parked in a parking lot in a mall in Nebraska? 
No, if there's consistency and I am finite in my understanding, I sometimes are going to be in conflict, but I can't expect God to willy-nilly just start changing things capriciously. Um, there was a, a, a doll that was made years ago by Mattel. It was called Chatty Cathy. Did any of you ever have a Chatty Cathy doll? Did you have one? We have one in our thrift store. Say it again. So you pulled a ring in her neck, and she said, Hi, my name is Chatty Cathy, and I love you, right? Jesse? Yes. She didn't really love you. <laughs> is there a psychologist here? She might need somebody for comfort afterwards. God could have just went around, gone around, put little rings in our neck, like Chatty Cathy, and said, we could have said, Hi, God, my name is Jerry, and I love you. It wouldn't have been real love. He gives us liberty, and with liberty comes the possibility of relationship. Even in the scriptures, when it commands love, it commands us to love God, it commands us to love our neighbor, it commands us to love our spouse, it commands us to love our children, even commands us to love our enemies. You can't obey a command merely emotionally. It requires a volitional response. So God makes us, and maybe somewhere along the line, I just want God to intervene. Maybe I prayed, God intervene. You're a big guy. What's your name? You. Me? Yeah. Mark. Huh? Mark. Oh, I met you earlier. Right. Mark. So Mark's a big guy. And, and I don't know if you know this about him, but he has 17 black belts in various forms of martial arts. He could reach in and pull out my heart and show it to me beating before I die. I don't know if that's true or not, but nevertheless, for sake of illustration. So I say something stupid. I'm very capable. And Mark raises his hand and says, wait a minute, Jerry, that doesn't make sense. And I know he's right, but I'm pretentious, so I try and cover it up with excuses. And then he just says, well, wait a minute, and he asks another question. And pretty soon, he's got me all tied up, and, and I'm furious, and I'm embarrassed, but I can't take him on head to head, because he has 17 black belts in martial arts. So he gets ready to leave, and I'm furious. I pick up this podium, and I go to hit him over the head with it. Now, I have prayed, God, please intervene. And as soon as this podium comes down, God immediately transforms it into a feather, and it tickles Mark in the back of the neck. He loves to be tickled. <laughs> so I pull out the 357 Magnum I always carry with me, and I fire two rounds at Mark, and just as the lead bullets leave the barrel of the gun, God turns them into marshmallows, slows down their speed. They gently ricochet off of his stomach right into his hand. He pops those puppies into his mouth, and he's so happy at his good favor. I throw the gun at him. As it twists through the air, God turns it into a sponge, and he's so happy because he's going to take a bath tonight, and he needs a sponge. All of a sudden, I start screaming obscenities at him, and before the sound waves can reach any ears, God dissipates the sound waves. You know what just happened? God put a ring in my neck. If he removes the consequences for the ill use of free will, then he also removes free will at that point, and I'm not a free person. So somehow, God, who creates us with free will, has to somehow work within that matrix in order to accomplish his purposes by fully giving us free will, but also showing some sort of sovereign operation that transcends these things. So let's look at divine goodness. 
If you ask the average person on the street what the opposite of God is, what would they likely tell you? Wouldn't they say Satan, probably? But is Satan the opposite of God? No. Lewis says Satan would be the opposite of a good angel like Michael, but he's not the opposite of God. Matter of fact, the opposite of God would be non-God. God has no opposite in this universe. If you ask the average person on the street what the opposite of evil is, what would they tell you? Yeah, it was good. And if, they, if, if you said, what's the opposite of good? They'd probably say evil. By the way, evil, somebody, people say, you can't really know good unless you know evil. That's heresy. We Christians are not dualists. We believe good is primary, evil is a contradiction. So evil is a perversion, Lewis says. Evil compares to good like bread mold compares to bread. Or if you think of a bad banana, you can't think of a bad banana without thinking of a good banana that gets spoiled. But if evil compares to good like bread mold compares to bread, what can humans, creative as we are, made in the image of a creative God, what can we do with bread mold? We make penicillin from it. Will we give God at least the quality of being able to make penicillin out of evil in our universe? I say arguably the worst thing that ever happened in human history was not suicide. It was not uh, homicide. It was not regicide. It was not genocide. The worst thing that ever happened in human history was deicide. We killed God when God came to prove his love for us. What did God do with that event? He didn't stop it, but he turned it on its head and made it the greatest demonstration of his good to us. And so I think as we begin to look at how Lewis came to this and started to look at the cross and saw how we could find this solution to the problem of evil, principally in the cross. And, 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 and he also says this, even about Satan. Um, since God suffers him to be, God must have some plan where he can even use Satan for good. Um, I remember reading in Luke 4 in my devotions, and it's a temptation of Christ in the wilderness. And, and Jesus hasn't eaten in 40 days, and God says to, or Satan says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, command these stones to be turned to bread. And I remember thinking, why didn't Jesus just turn Satan into a loaf of bread at that moment? <laughs> it would have made life a little less complicated. But if a good God allows him to exist, then a good God must believe he could bring greater good of his existence and his non-existence till he's done with Satan, till he's done with anything that Satan might be doing, whereby God would be ultimately working out his good plan. Remember Joseph, he says to his brothers, if you meant evil against me, you meant evil against me, God meant it for good. That God's at work in all of these things. And Lewis plays this out when he looks at the concept of divine goodness. And if you go back to the St. Irenaean, um, a, 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 a theodicy that sees how they're soul-making, in this process of this difficult world, this veil of tears, as is, 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 um, um, the poets called it, you, you begin to see that, that God is at work to develop in us a sense of courage, a sense of fortitude, a sense of justice, rendering to others their due, where we would even assume the pain of others in order to alleviate their pain and, and move towards Christ-likeness 
in that process. So anyway, that's basically how Lewis resolved these things. There's much, much more to it, but it should, that should give you a skeletal structure as to where you might go with it in your own thinking, okay? So we have time for some questions. Yes, that, ooh, hot. Yes, we do. Um, we want to take about the next uh, eight, nine minutes or so and have uh, Dr. Root answer some questions that you might, you might have. So raise your hand if you do. Pastor Donnie's going to be on this section. Here's one. I'll be on this section over here. What's your name? My name's Julie. When you started Julie. this lecture, you said that CS, you talked about Lewis's mother passing away and you said he became an atheist. And you said you were going to come back to that and tell us there was a problem with that. Do you remember? Yeah, well, he, he became an atheist, and what ended up happening was he, he recognized that his atheism in time wasn't sufficient to, to take care of things. Atheism was a quick move from Christianity, but it was the Christianity of his childhood. He says, I want God, not my idea of God. I want my neighbor, not my idea of my neighbor. The, the God that he was an atheist about was the God that was an insufficient God. It wasn't complete. He had people at his church, well-meaning people, I think, but they, they were um, irresponsible. They said, if you pray for your mother, she'll get better. I don't think you could give that guarantee to a child. And then she got worse, and they said, pray harder. So he thought that her survival was contingent upon his prayers. And he just prayed like a little boy who didn't want to lose his mother, and she died. What God did he reject? He rejected that God. It was a misrepresentation of God. So he becomes an atheist, and that rest of the process of moving from atheism, it's supporting materialism through the various kinds of agnosticism, uh, moving towards a, a, a theological understanding or religious understanding that said Christianity with the incarnation, whereby we can be made right with God, is better than the religions that say um, you, you're in trouble before God, you violated his law, and you are going to have to get right by doing something yourself, meriting God's grace. And he saw that didn't work. I've been in a lot of religious forums before where they'll have people, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, whatever. And always when I'm in them, I always try and sit at this end of the stage. Because I know at the end they're going to say, okay, what is it that allows people in your religious structure to be made right with God? And every one of them, it's some system of works, some system of personal merit. And, and then all of a sudden it comes to me and I'm saying, there's nothing you can do to fix it. But you are so beloved of God, the God of Trinity whose love is essential to his nature. This God loves you and he has chosen to fix it for you, which you couldn't fix for yourself in Christ. So that was all part of moving from the atheism of his childhood to moving towards the, his robust faith as an adult. Is that fair? Judy. Julie. Thank you, Julie. Anybody else? Here's one back here. By the way, a lot of the stuff that I told you tonight, it's in Surprise by Joy, and you'll get it in, in his book, Miracles, also. It's very helpful. Yes, first name, sir? My name is John, and... Don? Don? John. John? Yeah. Um, materialists and physicists and everything like this, um, they talk a lot about determinism and lack of free will. 
And so, could you comment a little bit on free will and sin and repentance in the in the world as we see it? Okay, I don't know exactly. That was a big question. You got me. You know, I don't know enough about physics to maybe see if I'm scratching where you're itching and so on. But did did I mention last night about the idea of foreknowledge and free will? Did I read it to you, what Lewis wrote about it? No. I brought it because it might stretch into the area where, that you're talking okay. about. that would be good. Huh? That would be good. I brought the quote from Lewis. It's here somewhere. Oh, well, I don't find it, but let me give it to you, basically. This is from Boethius, The Consolation of Philosophy. If God foreknows what I'm going to do before I get there, Am I really free when I get to that point? And, and Boethius, in Book 5, uh, uh, by, by the way, Lewis says Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy was the most influential book on medieval thought after the Bible. In his book, The Discarded Image, which is a book where he sets forth the medieval worldview for his students at Oxford so that they'll be understanding the matrix in which a medieval novel or book comes to us, and they won't be projecting 21st century or 20th century values on it. They'll get it for what it is. And, and basically, as he looks at book, he, Lewis gives a 16-page summary of that book. But it works like this. What is the brightest star in the winter sky? It's Cirrus, the dog star. It's 10 light years away. And that light that you look at when you look at Cirrus left Cirrus 10 years ago traveling at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. In some ways, you're looking into the past. What if you were really big and you could straddle Earth and Cirrus? What time would you be in? And not only that, what if you could be present at every step when that photon of light was traveling along that 10 years at light speed? So that you, when the light arrives at Earth, you're already there, but you're also still where the light left, Cirrus. In other words, Boethius is saying God is not perpetual and that he moves from one minute to the next, leaving behind where he's been as he moves towards something else. We do that. We go through time like that. But Boethius suggests that God is omnitemporal. All moments are always in his present. So, so I am, I am um, he, he, he sees my past in his perpetual now. If he has to judge me, he doesn't have to pull together a courtroom and find witnesses so he can find out what I did. He sees me doing it in his perpetual now. When God looks forward to my future, he doesn't have to be in a continuum looking forward. He sees it in his perpetual now. You're shaking your head, yes. I'm seeing you in my now, and I in no way inhibited your freedom in that moment. And that's the kind of thing that Lewis is looking at. If you read the chapter in Mere Christianity about time and eternity, it is so fed by Lewis's commitment to Boethian thought at that particular moment. And you might find that that's helpful. Is that helpful at all?
The, most of the physicists that I know, um, I don't know that many, you know, I can't keep up to speed with them, but most of the physicists I know, they have almost a supernaturalism about their science. They believe there's something that extends beyond, and so on. I remember reading Robert Jastrow's God and the Astronomers. It was a fabulous book where he's talking about this. They've taken us to the threshold of knowledge, and there's something beyond that, and they believe there's something beyond that. It's amazing. I'm sure not all physicists are on that page, but there are many who are. Yeah. Yeah, what do we got here? Your name, sir? Bill. Bill, Wild Bill. Wild Bill. Um, this, not really a fair question, but for those of us that haven't read much or any of Lewis or read your books, uh, these last Sunday and the last two days have just really triggered so many things in my mind, but overwhelming with your knowledge, what would you recommend as a good entry point as far as for your, your books oh, you don't or Lewis's? Don't read my books. I, I, you, see, I, I told you it wasn't a fair question. I'm putting you on the spot. There's though. no book about Lewis that is as good as Lewis. Okay, so if we read so, one Lewis book and one of your books, which ones would you? Well, recommend? I would. I would ask you: um, Do you like fiction or do you like nonfiction? Both. <laughs> Honest answer. I'm if, sorry. If, if you want to get good, uh, a good portrayal of the reasonableness of Christianity, I would start with mere Christianity. If you want to read one of my books that's very academically inclined, it's C.S. Lewis and A Problem of Evil, an Investigation of a Pervasive Theme. It took 10 years to write that book, and, and it's, it's, I, I, it's pretty deep, I think. You might need a shovel to get through it, you know? <laughs> But that, that would be one that maybe I'd suggest. If, if you want to spend that much time, I, I wouldn't read it. Matter of fact, my mother died a few years back and I, I lost virtually all of my reading audience. <laughs> and then when I retired, then my students, I didn't have students to force them to read those books either. So if you read it, you'll be my only reading audience at that moment. You'll be my hero, Bill. Yeah, here's one right here. Oh, We're 803. This has to be our last question for here's the evening. She, Jerry will be sticking around afterwards yeah, until happy. midnight answering yeah. questions. Yeah. Here, oh, you got him? I'll answer yours afterwards. Because he's... Hi, my name's Todd. Todd. Um, I'm just a visitor. I, I popped in on Saturday because I, I've spent about 10 to 12 years as an agnostic or atheist. Uh -huh. And I have to admit that in me I've felt a longing where there's a vacuum where God should be. Yeah. And I was just delighted to hear, know that I was going to hear more about C.S. Lewis because I grew up on the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh -huh. um, so with that said, you might have just answered my question, but you said that Lewis had a conversation with Tolkien that kind of moved him into be being a full believer. Right. Could you recommend a reading uh, on that conversation? I think that the surprise by Joy, his autobiography, is the one that you would want to read, where Lewis explains that. And, and your name is Todd? Yes. And you went from atheism to agnosticism. Todd, would you like to give your heart to Christ tonight? You know, I, I, think, there's some steps, I think there's some steps for me to receive faith, but I, I, I think I'm on that path with you. Yeah. Um, but I still have some more questions, though. 
Yeah, that's good. Questions are good. So this is Brent, and I want you to get his phone number, and I want him to get yours, so that when the questions come up, you've got somebody who could be a guide for you. And I'm really grateful you're here, and I want to pray for you for a second. Father, what, what great privilege that Todd came to service tonight and how he acknowledged that he has these longings in his heart. And we celebrate that, Father, because we believe that that's you giving him those longings as you seek to woo him to yourself. I pray that he would come to the place where the questions that he has would be resolved and he would be overwhelmed by how much you love him. And he'd be overwhelmed by your forgiveness and grace in his life. And it would be transformative to, to, to him and that he would be a great apologist for your faith. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for dignifying us by coming and joining us this evening. Bless you, sir. All right. Would you please thank Jerry Root for us? What a privilege. We're, we're really, really thrilled that um, we were able to host Dr. Jerry Root this entire week. Grateful, Jerry, that you were with us and you gave us your time. That was a real, a real gift. And the effects of that will, will linger on and will ripple outward. So um, next week, we're going to finish up our series on C.S. Lewis. Hope you'll be here Wednesday night at 6. Don't come Thursday. We won't be here. Wednesday, 645, we'll have a time of worship, teaching, and communion. Love you guys. Go in the grace of God. Thanks for being here with us. Huh?